The fear is real in the sense that you are actually experiencing it, but what it's trying to tell you may not be true. Those things about what's going to happen to your finances or your marriage, they can feel like they're really true. You know, back to the pause, you've said, I'm quoting you, maybe not exactly, you can correct me, is that by building in a pause through mindfulness, you're helping yourself make wiser decisions, period. In particular, wiser decisions about whether, when, and how to use technology. Correct. Yes. So the pause, way you can think about it, the pause doesn't guarantee that you'll make a wiser decision, but it at least creates an opportunity for you to make a wiser decision. Right. And not pausing means that you will act out of habit. That's right. No, sometimes a good habit can be good, and there's no one solution to this. Part of the solution is building up good habits through practice so that even when you don't have time to pause and you act so-called automatically, you're acting automatically out of habits that you've trained in your own best interest. And let me go back to this exercise I did before. There's another version of it, which is actually, I think it was the first one I came up with for myself, which was I realized the earliest point at which I could start that loop of getting sucked down a rabbit hole with my smartphone was when I reach for the phone. So what I practiced was an exercise where I put the phone wherever it normally was. It was at, you know, on a charger on my desk. And I practiced reaching for the phone and stopping right before I touch it and then pulling my hand back. And then do that like 20 times in a row. Reach, pause, pull my hand back. Reach, pause, pull my hand back. Just like you're doing reps in a gym. And I think I found for myself that drilled in a habit of pausing before I grabbed the phone after I started reaching. And I found that if I then, later in the day when I wasn't practicing mindfulness, I was just caught up in the middle of my day, if I reflexively reached for my phone, I would be more likely to pause because I had actually drilled that in as a mental and physical habit that would kick in automatically. And so you have to expect that you will often be acting automatically. If you can train your automatic habits to be ones that are in your best interest, you'll do better. When you do these exercises for yourself or help other lawyers, have you ever had an accountability partner, someone who you would commit to and say, this is what I'm going to do differently, or maybe ask them to check in with you on how you're doing? Yeah, I've done that with this. And I mean, I use that in many different aspects of my life generally. I think it's extremely valuable. I think in our culture, unfortunately, we're such a rugged individualist culture, and that's probably doubly so for lawyers, that we somehow have this belief that we need to learn and improve ourselves somehow entirely on our own. And if we don't, there's something wrong with us. And you know, for a problem like this, where the technological forces and the market forces are so strongly driving us to use the technology all the time, I think it's too much for any individual person to fight against that on their own. Well, yeah. I mean, and they're doing things to manipulate us, to get us hooked, to give us you know, that surge of endorphins. I know for me, when I before I check my email, there's this sense of sometimes dread, but sometimes excitement, like, oh, what new, especially when I've got a program that I'm about to do, and, and I'm looking to see how many folks have registered, got this excitement, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to see how many folks have now, how many more folks are, are coming. And that can be uh, pretty seductive, right? Absolutely, it can be seductive. And, you know, we've learned from, from social media is that sometimes 
even being drawn to and experiencing a negative emotion can be a draw and something that keeps us coming back just because it's something new and a new stimulus is exciting to our brain. And that's particularly true if you're bored, you know, going and experiencing something, strangely enough, that creates fear might at least give your brain some novelty and a stimulus that's exciting in a way and keep you coming back. So, but I think going back to the accountability partners, I think it's whether it's that you find a friend or a family member who wants to work on the same types of habits, that can be really good to say to them, hey, I'm working on this. They say they are, and you say, look, it's tough with tech, right? I did this, I remember a couple of years ago when I was trying to cut down on sugar and I had a friend who was in the same boat. And we said, okay, every time one of us is about to pick up a piece of chocolate or (laughs) grab a cookie, I'm going to text you. It's like having a sponsor. Yeah. And what I found interestingly was 90% of the time, I didn't even really need to text him. Just the thought of doing it was enough to cause me to pause and remember. And the same thing with him. But as long as it's, whether it's someone who's in the same boat as you or they're just open to supporting you, it just, it has to be someone who's going to be non-judgmentally supportive, not someone who's ever going to say or imply you're, you're being bad or you're a bad person if you slip, you know, but I think it's great. It could be a coach as well. They could actually hire a coach to help them with something like this if they think that that would be more helpful than to have someone they know. Yeah, it can absolutely be a coach. I mean, my business, I've had a business coach for many years. And there's been times, we haven't had to do it much in recent years, but there's been times when I've set some goal for myself related to the business and I keep slipping on it. And then either he or I will say, you know, do we need to do something more significant? Do I need to start checking in with him daily or more regularly? And every once in a while, I would say the nuclear option. Now you can set a reward, but we've set a penalty. (laughs) you know, and I've always set the penalty and I forget who I first heard about doing this, but I didn't come up with this idea. The penalty would be if I failed to meet whatever standard we set, I was going to have to donate money to a charity I strongly dislike. (laughs) And I'll say that I've never actually had to make that donation. But, you know, you can make it fun. It's a very personal, individualized thing. And accountability is so helpful. So, and it's important to put out there not to set unrealistic goals for yourself also. If you're starting something new, to set goals that are achievable and to be tangible about those goals so you can easily measure them. For example, like if the goal is not to have the phone in my room when I go to sleep, maybe do it two nights or three to start out and see how that goes. And if you have to tweak it, then you tweak it. But to not expect full-on 100% success from day one. I often encourage people, and I myself, set at the very beginning of any new habit, almost absurdly small goals. (laughs) You know, if I've been out of exercising for a while, it's like, okay, I'm going to exercise for three minutes on the first day. One, you're less likely to fail. Two, I've often found it's almost like a trick for my brain. If I set that three minutes... I'm probably going to end up exercising for 10 minutes. The problem is getting started. Absolutely. (laughs) That is the key to procrastination is getting started. I've worked with many clients around procrastination and it's just doing the first thing. Like for me, it's doing my taxes. I'm old school, so I still have receipts that I go through. (laughs) You're taking the envelope with my receipts out and putting them on the table. That might be it for the day. 
but but it gets okay and i know how i am once i start something i want to finish it it gets it gets me motivated to do that robert let me before i know we only have a few minutes left and and this has been great talk a little bit about the taming your email inbox there were a couple of things that you in looking at uh, your program that that jumped out at me but why don't you just talk a little bit about it and then i'll point out a couple of things that i want to follow up on yeah, there's way more that I can cover. So at the most important things, I'd say that at the highest level is that it is so easy to let your inbox be your boss, basically, and so that you're spending your day reactively responding to whatever is coming into your inbox. And that is really the reverse of for the most part, what is the most productive way to be. It's, it's letting the tail wag the dog. You know, the inbox is driving you, dictating what you do and when. I hate to use should, the word should, but uh, most people, and I find that when I am directing my own time as much as possible and using email within tasks that I'm directing myself in, that that's a much more stressful, much more productive, satisfying way to spend my day. It's not easy because path of least resistance with email, the way the software is set up, the way it works, is to just let the new messages that come in drive you. So again, it's another situation which you need to take some intentional affirmative steps to not let it be that way for yourself. That's the high level. Right. So it reduces the stress and you're more efficient. And you said... This is a, a social, not a technological shift. And that the basic idea is to let others know and to let others expect your new, slower pace of responding, right? This is a tough one for lawyers, right? Because we both are trained to, it's in our constitution to be extremely responsive to people. And beyond that, if you're in private practice, you know, the market forces are driving you to be very responsive. Everyone has the fear that if they don't respond to a new prospective client quickly enough, they'll go to some other lawyer. It's not only a client, right? It could be your, your boss. Could be your boss. Your young lawyer, for example, and, and one of the partners is expecting you to respond immediately every day of the week, no matter what hour. That's right. And these are not just fear. Like there is some real basis for these fears. So I don't want to dismiss them as just a feeling. At the same time, I can tell you that when I started working on this for myself and I pushed myself to challenge the contours of the reality behind this fear, I found that not all of my fears were justified. So there's truth. This is a complex truth we're living in. So for example, you know, my fear was if I didn't respond to every client immediately, you know, they'd all leave and go somewhere else. And I found that, you know what, I can actually go a couple of hours without responding to clients. It's training your clients too, right? Training the clients. So here's a tough one, but I would challenge lawyers to do this. When a client emails you and says, this is urgent, one thing you can do is not respond to them for a while. That's the thing that may trigger fear in you. Another, and I did this recently with a long-standing client. They emailed me, and then what did they do? They called me. They hadn't responded to the email quickly enough. And really important, I need to do, I, this is something I need to attend to. And I said, now, I do have a long relationship with this client. But I said, oh, you know, what really is the need for getting this done today? And I want to understand, is this something we could attend to tomorrow or later in the week? Now, your tone of voice is going to be important, knowing who the client is, the situation. 
you know, so I asked it respectfully and honestly, and we had a very short conversation in which he acknowledged it was not really urgent and it was fine to attend to it the next day or whatever it happened to be. Maybe it was two days later. So that kind of, I wouldn't even call it pushing back, but maybe digging beneath the surface with the client can often have unexpected results. Your fear that the only possible outcome is that uh, they're going to be upset with you or go somewhere else may not be true. And you know what? In that case, I don't want to toot my own horn too much. Maybe I even help the client address his own anxiety (laughs) by helping him to realize this thing that he felt was urgent really wasn't. And mindfulness will work here too when you're, let's say you are feeling fear. Fear is an emotion and fears and emotions are transitory. If you can just pause and recognize, okay, I'm feeling fearful, identify the emotion and just be with it and know it's not going to destroy you, it will dissipate. And and you can also push back on some of those automatic thoughts you have. Oh my gosh, I'm going to lose this client. If I lose this client, I'm not going to bring in enough money. If I don't bring enough money, uh, my practice is going to fail. If my practice fails, you know, my, my marriage fails. You can take it all the way down, fortune telling down the road without any data. And And so part of the intervention could be also challenging the negative talk that we have. We don't have much time, but as you said, and and anyone who's had mindfulness practice will know, the fear is real in the sense that you are actually experiencing it, but what it's trying to tell you may not be true. Those things about what's going to happen to your finances or your marriage, they can feel like they're really true, like those future things you're imagining are certain to occur. Through what you as what you explain as the mindful pause, and ex- you can get in touch with the feeling, acknowledge that the feeling is real, gain some distance from the story that the feeling is causing your mind to spin out. Yeah, we could. Boy, this time went so fast, Robert. And I know, I know you have some work to do. So I want to respect your time, but but I could talk another hour with you. We may do another one of these. I'm glad to do another one. Absolutely, it's a rich topic. A couple of things you said I want to I want to tell that that I in my reading that I thought were great ideas. One was to put your email schedule in your email signature. In other words, how often do you check your email during the day? Like I check it, and I've seen people do this. I check it at check my email twice a day, 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. Whatever or three times a day, and then, or have an autoresponder. I'm busy now and, re- and will respond later. Just a couple of, I thought, really practical ideas for folks to become more of the boss of their email as opposed to the way it is now for many of us. That's right. And help to set the expectations of the people you're communicating with about your availability. It helps ease their anxiety. It helps them gain some expectation of when you'll respond. And then for your own benefit, it means they're going to be bugging you less. (laughs) So Robert, is there a a website or a podcast that you want to point people to? Yeah. Go to technologyformindfulness.com, all one word. And the blog is there. The podcast is there. Lots of different resources. And you know, I do pop up from time to time on other people's podcasts like this. The Insight Timer there too? Yes, you can find that. And if you have the Insight Timer app, just search for me by name, Robert Plotkin, and you'll find a bunch of guided meditations that relate specifically to using technology and dealing with the stress and anxiety of technology. So there's an Insight Timer app that you can find for your phone. 
It is uh, the largest source of free guided meditations of all apps. And I have my own guided meditations posted on there. And all of mine relate to technology or productivity in one way or another. That's fantastic, Robert. I would love to stay connected with you. And I really appreciate your giving me and the listeners your time today. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I really appreciate it. I'd love to come back and stay in touch and you hear back from any listeners about any particular topics related to technology, mindfulness, legal practice. I'd love to talk more about it. Very good, Robert. Thanks again. And thanks all of you for, for listening. We'll have another show hopefully in uh, next week. Thank you. You're welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye, Robert. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners, so please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers Podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast.